When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. So I have a question for you. Okay. Do you think that you are the same person that you were 20 years ago? Ah, ha <laughs> Well, my husband's a philosopher, and we talk <laughs> about this all the time. <laughs> I figured this was not a new question at your house. <laughs> um, oh, yes. <laughs> I'm going to go with no. Ah, no, yes. Yes. No. Final answer. Okay, then, if you are a new person, okay, uh huh. How much of this person did you choose? Ooh. I am going to put on my existentialist hat mm. and say all of it. So you're fake. Because I chose who I am? Yeah, you, you chose an identity. It's not your real identity. Oh, I see. I can put on my determinist hat instead and say I made none of those choices. Mm. I am the bag of chemicals that I am, and I always was going to choose what I was going to choose, and there was never any other possibility. Ah. So what if someone were to, say, move to a new country, change their name, change their age change their nationality, <laughs> change their marital status. <laughs> that sounds like a very specific question for a hypothetical. <laughs> Are they lying? Is that any different than me choosing what I want to be? <laughs> Good question. I guess it depends on what's driving those decisions. Is it like this deep feeling of identity from within mm. that is being expressed and so this person has to make radical changes to their life or if they just love lying <laughs> <laughs> that in a nutshell is the question of lola ridge what really hmm. was her life a, a lie that's the question that's the question wow cool and does it matter I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. Lola Ridge was an Irish-American poet who was one of the most important figures in the radical Greenwich Village community in the 1920s. She was born Rose Emily Ridge in Ireland. But when she was a little girl, her mom took her off to New Zealand Married a new man in New Zealand, as far as we can tell, still married to the man in Ireland. 
takes up a new life in a New Zealand mining camp. Wow. Very similar to Cripple Creek from our first season. Oh, really? Lola grows up there, marries a New Zealand miner herself, has a kid, is completely miserable, and takes off to Australia to go to art school, hmm. and eventually leaves Australia for California. Wow. So this is all in the late 1800s? Uh, she moves to California in 1907. Oh, wow. That's kind of an extreme thing to do back then. It's really clear that her marriage was not a healthy one because her husband was threatening to kill her. Mm. When she arrives in California, she has to declare herself at immigration. On her form, she takes 10 years off her age, ha! calls herself Australian when she is an Irish New Zealander. Huh. She changes her name and she marks herself down as unmarried. Wow. In one stroke, completely changes everything about her identity. So to learn more about Lola Ridge, I talked to Therese Voboda. This is Therese Voboda, author of Anything That Burns You, A Portrait of Lola Ridge, Radical Poet. Therese Voboda is a well-known poet herself. Wow. She's published six books of literature, seven books of poetry, a memoir. She's won a Guggenheim Award. She's won several really prestigious poetry prizes and grants. So she brings a really unique insight into Lola Ridge's work and her life. Cool. And she actually didn't stay long in California. She deposited her son in an orphanage and went to New York, where within eight months, she was working for Emma Goldman and uh, founding something called the Fairer Center, which was a center for anarchists in uh, New York. This is the very beginning of like the radical bohemian movement of starving artists and garrets and sex, drugs, and ragtime, I guess. <laughs> sort of all of the things that we think of as being Greenwich Village are born in this decade. She turned up in New York and published her first book of poetry called The Ghetto and Other Poems exactly 100 years ago in 1918. And these contain uh, many of the poems that she's noted for because she rhapsodized over the Jews in the ghetto of the Lower East Side, saying that they had potential as immigrants rather than uh, condemning them as Pound and Elliot did. Debris. I love those spirits that men stand off and point at or shudder and hood up their souls. Those ruined ones where liberty has lodged an hour and pass like blame, bursting asunder the too small house. So she arrives at New York at the peak of New York's melting pot status. Mm-hmm. And she immediately moves into the Lower East Side, which is the Jewish ghetto, essentially. Okay. And she is living the starving artist life in a one-room apartment with no heat and she's not eating wow she's chosen this as an identity okay these ideas of identity are really interesting and complicated especially in terms of i think what she brings with her to her poetry and to her view of america you know, the war for Irish independence is going on. There's this huge internal strife mm -hmm. happening in her home country that she doesn't probably remember. Mm -hmm. 
She is raised in New Zealand, which is by far the most progressive country in the world. Hmm. She's a multiple times immigrant, and yet her poetry really was seen as embodying something uniquely American. She was often called an incredibly insightful American voice. She was one of the only people who seems to have successfully captured the Jewish ghettos as they really were. But she's not Jewish, right? She's not Jewish. She's totally fascinated with the Jewish ghettos and with the Jewish immigrant population. Early on in her career in New Zealand, there was a huge wave of nationalism because New Zealand had split from Australia as a country. So they were trying to figure out who they were as New Zealanders about the time that she left New Zealand. So when she went off to America, she had interest in nationalism and finding out what made American poetry American. She only wrote a few poems, maybe one or two, that touched on her identity as an Irish woman. And then to have found the Jewish community so fascinating, I think she must have lived in the Lower East Side, about a block away from where I live right now, in a five-by-seven room, and in the very heart of the Lower East Side on Hester Street. She must have come to America and encountered, in a very personal way, the immigrants on the Lower East Side. And through them, met Emma Goldman and so many other Jewish revolutionary anarchists. So she arrives in New York and she quickly finds a place among all of the writers and artists and is really well respected for her writing. She publishes a book of poetry. It's very well received. It's cutting edge, incredibly radical, completely modern poetry, which is very much focused on hyper-realism. The literature and poetry of this time is gritty. It's realistic. You feel like you're standing right in the middle of the ghetto and experiencing these things. Mm. There was a story later in her life where she was with a group of women who had grown up in the Jewish ghetto. And she read some of her works to them and they had tears in their eyes and said, I feel like I'm there again. You've exactly captured where we lived. Mm. So there she is again, taking on another identity. Exactly, yeah. She becomes the voice of the Jewish immigrant community. Wow. When she's an Irish New Zealander. Hmm. She seems to be a really strange chameleon. Brooklyn Bridge. Pythonous body. Arching over the night like an ecstasy. I feel your coils tightening and the world's lessening breath. She's hired to edit modernist magazines. So these were really important literary magazines. Uh, One especially was called Broom. Broom is deciding what is important art, what is important poetry, which is hard for us to understand now because now no one cares what's important in poetry. (laughs) But in the early 1900s, poetry was so important and Poets were famous. Mm. Poetry and women's poetry in general were acclaimed during the 1920s. People were three or four deep in front of the bookstore fighting to get the latest volume. Edna Sentence Malay sold 60,000 copies of one of her books in 1931. 
When she's working at Broom, one of her jobs is to hold salons, essentially, hmm. with all of the other famous writers and poets and thinkers. Salons in the sense of like a think tank, not like a hair studio. No, yes, sorry, <laughs> like a European salon, right. right? Where writers, artists, musicians will come and hang out and talk about ideas. And she's curating this magazine. She's choosing who will be the voices that America listens to. Wow. She's really in at the heart of what's happening in American literature, a huge shift in American literature at this point. Hmm. And they think she's 22, so that's a pretty good gig. Yeah, wow. You really don't understand her influence on American modernism unless you see how she brought people together and really pushed for people to consider what was American about the work they were doing. And uh, the fact that she has not been counted really does no justice to the effect that she had on literature in the United States. I also think there's a really interesting connection here to Mary Lou Williams mm. from our previous episode that in the same way that Mary Lou Williams is sort of cultivating this brand new thing of bebop in her apartment, yeah. Lola Ridge is bringing about a new art form. Right. Wow. In uh, British history, we call that person a kingmaker. Yeah. Nobody knows their name, but they are the ones who decide who the king is going to be. Huh. Yeah. The title poem, Sun Up, was written in the voice of a very bad girl. There's a long series of poems that relate to her doll, Janie. This is just an excerpt from it. I beat Janie and beat her. But still she smiled, so I scratched her between the eyes with a pin. Now she doesn't love me anymore. She scowls and scowls, though I begged her to forgive me and poured sugar in the hole at the back of her head. Registration is now open on What's-Her-Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. She's not just a literary curator at this point. She's not just involved in the art life. She's heavily involved in the protest life of Greenwich Hmm. Village and of this radical section of American society. She's next noted in the headlines, newspapers across the United States for being one of the intellectuals who attended the demonstrations against the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti. Sacco and Vanzetti were immigrants who were accused of murder in New York. Now it's accepted that they were pretty obviously innocent Mm -hmm. and that this was just anti-immigrant hysteria at its height. The entire world was watching as to whether or not this execution was going to go through. She was arrested during the demonstration with Edna St. Vincent Millay, and there's a picture of her being hauled away by a policeman. But the key scene is that she stood up to a police horse, a rearing police horse, And everyone was terrified that she was going to be killed until someone darted out from the crowd and dragged her off. 
She is a very small woman. In fact, she really struggled with eating disorders and also just poverty. Hmm. But she also seems to have embraced that identity, this sort Mm, of wispy, ephemeral, poetic presence. But she becomes an icon at this moment, of course, this very small Mm. woman refusing to be moved. She was uh, an icon to everyone as a proletarian modernist who stood up as an activist. She starts working with Emma Goldman. Mm. If people know who Emma Goldman is, she was sort of the voice of radical anarchism. Mm -hmm. She worked with Emma Goldman for about four years at the Ferrer Center, where Lola, described by Will Durant, who was uh, a teacher for her school for children, as being the most unlikely person to organize. And I think that's true, given the number of manuscripts that she lost during her life. Nonetheless. The Ferrer Center was sort of a radical anarchist education (laughs) center. Education for everyone. They ran a bunch of adult education programs for immigrants. Lola, like Margaret Sanger, who was hanging around there at the same time, learned a lot about how people perceived of their freedoms and how you could actually attempt to organize anarchists. Not an easy (laughs) task. I think it was a very valuable and fruitful time for her, but she eventually left for a trip around the country for about four years. I don't know really what she did during that time other than write her first book. Here's a picture of the children in the ghetto. The sturdy ghetto children marched by the parade, waving their toy flags, prancing to the bugles, lusty, unafraid. But I see a white frock and eyes like hooded lights out of the shadows of pogroms, watching, watching. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, the Girls Can Crate. The Girls Can Crate introduces girls ages 5 to 10 to real fearless women who made the world better. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique activity book, two or three hands-on STEAM activities, and more. So we got our first subscription box this week, and I have to say it was awesome. Oh, cool. A beautiful book that tells you the story of the woman and then has relevant activities. The activities we're doing are related to electricity. My kids loved it. It's really cool. That sounds awesome. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com, C-R-A-T-E.com, and use the code HERNAME, all caps, you'll get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription. The next feat that she accomplished was she went to Europe. She had $100 from one of her patrons when she boarded the boat, and that was it. And she continued to send letters to her various patrons as she slowly crossed Europe for Baghdad. She wanted to see the cradle of civilization. Her ambition was now to write the all-encompassing poem, which was the ambition of many poets at that point. They all wanted to understand everything. Wow, that's ambition. Now people want to write the great American novel. They wanted to write the great American epic poem. She did make it to Baghdad and had a look around. 
As soon as she gets there, almost, there is essentially Baghdad's Kristallnacht. It's incredibly dangerous, and she doesn't so much leave Baghdad as escape from Baghdad. Wow. She was supposed to be finishing a long poem, and indeed she kept telling her husband she was. But when she arrived home, she didn't have anything. Now, she might have actually written quite a bit, because throughout her life she consistently loses her manuscripts. Several years later, she goes to Mexico, has an affair with a man in Mexico, writes a novel about his life, or says she's writing a novel about his life, and comes back with nothing. And apparently lost the manuscript of this novel on a Greyhound bus. Just left it. So she may have written the greatest American poem and left it in a hotel. (laughs) Or she may have not done anything. After her trip to Baghdad... She received a series of small grants and a Guggenheim, which enabled her to go off to Mexico. En route, she met Diego Rivera and Frida Gallo and took up a lover at the age of 61. And it was a very tempestuous affair, and, and she finally split when she had absolutely no money left. She turned up in California. She's really kind of the American Rilke. She expects everyone to come to her and nothing should stand in her way. And Rilke was just the same. Destroyed many lives writing his poems about angels. I am too fierce and imperious. There is too much capacity for destruction in me, too little tolerance, too much pride. I notice that if I have a flower in my hand, I tear it to pieces. And that is what I do with life. I don't believe her. Mm. I think she thinks she's exactly fierce enough. (laughs) She died in Brooklyn, nearly penniless. She said she didn't have any underwear. And most of her teeth had been pulled. So she was ill. She had tuberculosis. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) They never really found it. She went to the hospital frequently, though. So this may all have been part of the image she's cultivating. Yes. Her illnesses isolated her and in a way elevated her socially. Because you can't be ill without being wealthy enough to take care of it. But there's nothing that really would have been so debilitating that she would have spent so much time in bed. I mean, even some of the blurbs write about her struggling from her bed to create these works of literature. So it was definitely part of her persona that she cared to cultivate. She really seems to have understood the power of image. She controlled her own narrative. She was known, according to her friend Evelyn Scott, you darling Brunhilde of the sickbed, Jean d'Arc of the germs. All the people around her really seem to have viewed her as this very ascetic, almost nun-like figure. William Carlos Williams, a really well-known poet, called her a vestal of the arts, this dedicated priestess to art. They kind of saw her as saintly, which is funny because she was the opposite of saintly. She was a bigamist and, you know, running around the country and having affairs. I mean, she had two husbands. She had a lot of sexy poems. She controlled her image. She had 
quite a number of pictures taken of her, but she was like Emma Goldman and never smiled. And I think either that's mm. because she did in fact have terrible teeth <laughs> mm. or because she wanted to appear serious as opposed to men who never were asked to smile. So she controlled that aspect as well. When she realizes that she's dying, ironically, it gives her this huge sense of freedom. She had sort of been abandoned by everyone. When people came to visit her toward the end of her life, they would speak to her husband rather than to her. She must have been very doctrinaire because, of course, the Nazis were climbing all over Europe and everybody was pretending that it wasn't happening. Well, not everyone, but many. And so when she realized that no one cared, I guess she felt that rush of possibility. She was preparing to write three more books. She really felt the fire is running through me, she said. I have then the first requisite for a great book, the freedom of my own spirit, my own citadel, and command of its gates. Wow. You know, this is a month before she dies. It's amazing to me that she just has this boundless belief in her own ability. Wow. Why have I not heard of her? Yeah. I've heard of Edna St. Vincent Millay. How come I haven't heard of Lola Ridge? Why isn't she so famous? There's a couple of answers to that. One is, I think, just that we really underestimate the power of fad. Mmm. When she died in 1941, the cultural ethos was against radicals, against women, and against experiment. When they come out of World War II, even free verse is seen as dangerous. Free oh. verse goes out of style. <laughs> even Louise Bogan, who was the New Yorker editor at the time and a friend of Lola's, praised Lola's use of the sonnet. They were terrible. She wrote terrible sonnets. <laughs> Form was in, and uh, naturally, because of World War II, radicals were out. Society has completely shifted. They don't want any of this anymore. Radicalism is scary. Oh, Radicalism yeah. leads to millions of deaths. Especially if she's associated with communism. Yeah, people just want safety. Yeah. They want things that are nice. So one quote that I like is, nice is the one adjective in the world that is laughable applied to any single thing I have ever written. <laughs> That's an interesting parallel. Her legacy is a mini history of America. Yeah. We were having radical conversations, and then World War II happened, and then we decided anything radical was not going to be a part of our story. Yeah. And invented this mythology of what American families are, what American life is, and installed it as the way it's always been. Yeah. When it had never been anything remotely like that. Yeah. And the other problem, as Therese Svoboda says, is... You need a champion. You need someone to take care of your papers, and you need someone to write a biography, and you need students who yeah. will chant your name at the right time. In the 70s, her husband, David Lawson, was befriended by a woman who later became the executor of his and Lola's estate. Lawson gave the papers to Smith College with the promise that the executor could keep half of the papers while she worked on a biography. 
Unfortunately, 40 years passed and no biography nor a collected works ever appeared. Therefore, people interested in her moved on. When she died in 1941, the New York Times said she was one of our most important poets. And yet in the 60s, she is mentioned in two anthologies. Mm. She was selected for an anthology edited by Robert Haas in 2014. And I hope other people find her work in the coming years. The way that you become famous in literature is to be put in an anthology that is taught to undergraduates. Mm -hmm. If you're in an anthology, a whole generation of students are going to see you as important, as real, as worth studying. Right. And they're going to teach that to their students. So if you're not in the anthology, you don't exist. Yeah. And that phenomenon mimics what also happens in history. You know, I think we brought this up in episode one, Professor Peter Marshall talking about how the present creates the past. Yeah. And every generation, we write history a different way, and we pick out different characters that we place at the center of the story. Yeah. We select bits of the past yeah. to tell the story today. So if some historian writes a best-selling history of the 1920s, decides that Lola Ridge was a major central character, then they might put her back in and say, look at her at, at the epicenter of all of this stuff going on, and then suddenly she'll be famous. Yeah. I guess a lot of what happens in all societies is just this ongoing cultural conversation about what our story is and yeah. who matters in it. That's what I find so interesting because that's literally what she was doing as an editor for Broom. She is curating who is in yeah. and who is out. Oh, good She's point. She's deciding who are the people that matter yeah. in modernist literature and art and music. Right. And then she got deselected after uh. her death. She got remnanted <laughs> after her death. What would she make of that? What do you think she would make of being one of those yeah. who doesn't make the cut. It's hard to know because mm. she was such a constructed personality. Mm. I don't think we can know what she really thought about anything. Oh. You know, once when she was asked what poets should write about, her response was, anything that burns you. So she really does seem to have lived her own passionate belief in the real importance of art and literature and poetry. But she seems to have been performing the part of willowy, spiritual, aesthetic, above-it-all, mm. starving artist. So maybe she would have had to pretend that she didn't matter, it was art for art's sake, and been really angry. Or maybe she really genuinely didn't care. I mean, she could have been rich and famous if she wanted, and she didn't. She was also such a genuinely spontaneously generous person and seemed to really care about humanity. Mm. So I, she's she's one of the most complicated, enigmatic characters that I've ever really encountered. I don't I don't know what she would think and I don't know what I think about her. Wow. What a fascinating person. I don't think I understand her at all. <laughs> If 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving a small donation to support our women's history work. Just visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com and click donate. Huge thanks to our guest, Therese Faboda. If you'd like to learn more about Lola Ridge, we have pictures, links to her books and Therese Faboda's books, and more on our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. Music for this episode was provided by Killarney, Half Pelican, The New Hot Five, Faye Nippon, Ivano Batistone, and David Bellucci. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. This episode was edited by Olivia Mickle, and What's Your Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson. <laughs>